Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with your host, Matthew Miller. We give you pint-sized, bite-sized pieces of supernatural monster lore, exploring their origins, their history, and their meaning to the human condition. Listen on, if you dare. <laughs> To dashing, handsome, young, seductive man or woman. The image and concept of vampires have changed greatly through the ages. These creatures were once the stuff of nightmares, dreadful horrors to be feared and avoided at all costs. Today, they're the crushes of teenage girls. Would the real Dracula please stand up? I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert on all things monster and paranormal. I'm a horror writer from the dark, haunted swamps of Louisiana. And it's my pleasure to welcome you into my terrifying world. Please check out my books on Amazon, beginning with Blood Feud, A Punk Rock Vampire Story. It's volume one of the Gravediggers series. The Gravediggers are a punk rock band who keep crossing paths through all sorts of dark, evil, nasty creatures. It's horror, it's comedy, it's super entertaining. The first three volumes are already available on Amazon, on Kindle or on paperback. The final three are coming very soon. So this is the final episode of the Vampire series of 15 minutes. In most ancient cultures, blood was seen as the life of a person. Not a representation of that life, not a metaphorical symbol, but the actual life, the literal life of the person. You can see why that's the case, right? You lose your blood, you die. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was thus treated as something special, something uh, maybe holy or something uh, you know, very um, unique to mankind. The drinking or consuming of blood was seen as illegal or immoral in most ancient Mediterranean cultures precisely because blood was seen as another being's life and only God, the gods, had the right to take that life. Just as a, you know, an example uh, from the Bible, which is a reference for, the, for Western European culture and for U.S. culture, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, we have this law from God. Be sure you do not eat the blood, because the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. You must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. So there's that, uh, that, that relation of blood to life. It says the blood is the life, right? The blood doesn't represent the life. The blood is the life. Then again, you have other cultures, Asian, African cultures, uh, where out through history, drinking blood was encouraged, or even, even eating it. I remember when I lived in China, I lived there for many years in mainland China, and you know you could get congealed pig's blood as an ingredient in your soup, <laughs> and I ate it more than once. It was good. Uh, but drinking blood was encouraged because it's viewed as holy and life-giving, full of nutrients, minerals. I think of the modern Maasai in Africa, the, the, the people who do this still, they drink uh, cow's blood for different reasons. Perhaps there's some deep part of our evolutionary or genetic memory that recognizes this, you know, about blood being the life. Many people pass out at the sight of blood, right? <laughs> uh, 
So there's something about blood that we associate with life. The oxymoron, or maybe the actual contradiction of vampires, of course, is that they are undead beings who subsist on blood. Blood is life, but they're dead, right? They're the dead who use liquid life. It is life that makes them dead, in a sense. And that's a contrast, isn't it? And a contradiction. Does this unnatural juxtaposition of death with life somehow reveal humanity's own view of death and life? I mean, isn't our very existence a contradiction in so many ways? After all, we're living beings, right? We're moving, we're sentient, we're self-aware, we're feeling. Life feels so natural to us. It's like the default state of being, right? That's why it's so hard for people to imagine ourselves dead. <laughs> Yet, if we lose enough of that blood, of that life force, then we simply stop living. We die. Death really is the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? <laughs> it's a natural part of life. But it seems so unnatural when it affects us. When we think about our own mor uh, mortality. You know, think about your own death and it seems like something that can't happen. But it's the most natural thing in the world. We're all going to die. So when we think about death, we see this combination of our life force, represented by blood, and this kind of strange unnaturalness of death. When we lose that blood, that life, we become what? A corpse, right? A dead body, an unmoving corpse, a husk that no longer really contains who we are inside. Everything that we think of as us goes away somehow. And so perhaps the vampire mythos is one way of trying to deal with this contradiction. Perhaps the real threat and fear of the vampire is seeing how closely related life and death really are for us. We'll explore this topic more even when we get to the zombie series of 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore, by the way. What else could the vampire represent? <clears throat> I've sometimes thought about the connection between vampirism and human addiction. That's right, addiction. Addiction comes in many forms, doesn't it? The first thing I think of when I hear the word addiction or addict is drugs or alcohol. Certainly those are real things. They're very difficult, right? Um, even smoking cigarettes is an incredibly hard uh, addiction to, to break. We know that, at least in modern science, has taught us that the brain, and I mean the physical form of the brain of an addict, actually changes. It changes physically. New opiate reward channels, actual grooves in the gray matter are formed. New connections are formed between neurons. And the reward, that release of opiates, it's so great that the body... Um, is taught by the brain to crave that substance so much that it really becomes basically impossible to overcome without help or intervention. And this is what modern science teaches us. For, you know, culturally, we still think of an addict, an alcoholic, as someone with a moral failing, but we know now that it's almost impossible, once addicted, to quit without help or without some kind of medical intervention. It's like a starving man being presented with a thick, juicy cheeseburger and telling him, don't eat it, and putting it a, front, uh, you know, a foot in front of him. I mean, technically, nothing's physically forcing him to eat it, right? But come on, in reality, what are the chances that he's not going to eat it? That's what addiction is like. Besides obvious things like drugs and alcohol, there are other addictions, which can be just as strong. People can be addicted to food, to emotional eating. That's something I've struggled with before. You can be addicted to love, or addicted to the love of a particular person so that they consume your thoughts, your every 
second of being. Think about a teenager infatuated with, with another teenager. It consumes them, right? It's all they can think about. You can be addicted to a pleasurable activity, to a place, even to a philosophy. You can be addicted to a group of friends. Anything that produces that opiate channel reward in the brain can become a real addiction. To an addict, the substance of choice really does become like life. Without it, the addict feels terrible. And with some kind of drug, some sorts of drugs, like I think of like um, uh, amphetamines, things like that, they can really feel like they're dying from withdrawal. Heroin, those kind of things. The addicts say that when they withdraw, they truly feel like they're dying. So perhaps the vampire is a personification of human addiction. After all, the vampire is no longer a real full human, right? He or she is the corpse of a human. They move and survive only by the obsessive consumption of blood. And so, in a very real sense, the vampire is addicted to blood. So addicted that in most lore, in most of the vampire myths, when they lack blood for long enough, they wither up into dust, or they shrink into a skeleton. But they maintain their awareness and consciousness. They sort of enter this this state of being that's between life and death, and it's miserable. And in this sense, the vampire really is the perfect, the absolute addict. They exist only to find and consume blood. Well, let's move on to this idea of the handsome, seductive vampire. Think of Dracula, and in more modern times, Edward Cullen of Twilight. Don't get me started, by the way, on vampires sparkling in sunlight. But anyway, we've talked about how the vampire has transformed over time from a reanimated, rotting corpse to a dashing, you know, desirable gentleman, a man about town. What's that about? Well, even though the Dracula character trope is a relatively modern one, remember from previous episodes of this podcast that even some of the earliest accounts of vampirism also included seduction. So the general idea does go way back. What is it about vampires that attract us so? Well, if you've read Dracula by Bram Stoker, you know that uh, one of the themes there is that Dracula, Count Dracula, was a chance for Lucy Westerner, Mina, Har- Mina Harker, two of the main characters, to escape the bounds of English Victorian society. Count Dracula, he was an exotic outsider from Eastern Europe, a different culture, different swarthy features than the Englishmen they were used to. Perhaps the vampire represents the darker side of people, darker side of humankind. After all, no one is perfectly good or perfectly bad, are they? Think of the best person you know. Even they make mistakes, right? Even they do bad things sometimes. Think of the worst person you know. Okay, let's use the the typical Hitler as as an example, right? Well, even he was kind to his dogs. I mean, don't get me wrong, he was a vile excuse for a human. But he wasn't 100% bad, is the point I'm getting at. See, inside each of us, there's uh, a part, I think, that wants to strive to do good, as we understand good, to be moral, to help others, right? But isn't there also a darker side, too? Isn't there a person within us all who's greedy, lustful, gluttonous, angry, violent, even animalistic? I mean, if there weren't such a thing, there'd be no such thing as the idea of temptation, or right or wrong, or vice and virtue, sin, redemption. I mean, haven't you ever just wanted to do the wrong thing? Be honest about it. All of us have at some point. The easy thing, the lazy thing, the thing that brings you pleasure, even if it might hurt others. We all have. That's part of the human condition. We struggle against that. So perhaps the vampire represents that darkness in us all. 
the attraction to vampires. It represents that part of our mind, our spirit, our soul, however you want to define it, that's tempted to go there, to do dark things, to follow that darkness. You have to admit it's seductive. It's difficult to resist, right? Temptation. Who is it, Oscar Wilde, that said, I could resist everything except temptation? <laughs> and so we are seduced by the vampire. One last idea about the vampire mythos I had is just the weirdness of death and the fear that death really is the end. I don't know about you, but I wonder about we die, do we just cease to exist? Is there life after death? Most of us fear death. The world is filled with religions, you know, trying to believe that there's life after death. Maybe all of the paranormal creatures we have, vampires, ghosts, zombies, demons, maybe these are just devices that we've created in order to believe something other than this world exists and to hope for life after death. What do you think? What's your take on the vampire mythos and lore? Do you agree with any of my thoughts? Disagree? That's okay too. Do you have some thoughts of your own? What makes that risen, undead, blood-drinking corpse so damn popular with people? Well, the mystery continues. If you do have ideas, I'd love to hear from you. I've decided to start giving out my email address in the podcast. It's matthew.miller.writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, at gmail.com. Again, that's matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. matthewmillerwriter at gmail.com. Well, that wraps up the vampire series of 15 minutes of fangs and folklore. Thank you so much for listening. The next series, beginning next week, will deal with the lore of the werewolf. And so, on the next full moon, if you hear something scratching, sniffing outside your bedroom window, and then a howl in the night, well, you'd better tune in so you'll know what to do. Until next time, sleep well, if you can.